Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, we ask that in the preaching of your word, you would speak to us clearly and that we would listen. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's funny to think that our passage begins with the words, now after Jesus was born, considering the fact that Jesus' birth really wasn't the focus of what went before. Jesus' birth is mentioned in passing at the end of chapter 1, and by the time we get to chapter 2, it's already in the rearview mirror. Matthew has sort of missed what you would think is the biggest event of the nativity. In fact, Matthew wouldn't even contribute at all to our nativity scenes were it not for the inclusion of the story that we find here about the wise men, because this is really all that he has to say about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus that enters into our nativity festivities. But it is pretty interesting. Remember I said last week that where Luke really focuses on what we might think of as the perspective of Mary, Matthew focuses on the perspective of Joseph, and maybe that accounts for the fact that all of the trauma and events of birth are glossed over quickly, because those tend to be things that the wife is more focused on than the husband is. But here, an event takes place that is really fascinating, and it opens up the, the scope of Matthew's gospel in an interesting way. Because we have here in chapter 2 a clash of kingdoms. We have an assertion of kingship that comes to threaten a king who currently sits on a throne. The royal line of David, which we saw in the genealogy, 
the angelic names given to Jesus, all of those things are foreshadowing a claim to kingship that Jesus will make. That Jesus is the king of the Jews. There's just one problem with that. There is already a king of the Jews. His name is Herod, and he jealously defends his crown. He is determined to keep it. And so the life of Jesus begins in the midst of this conflict over kingdoms. What is the true kingdom and who is the true king? We will see in this story people seeking after a king, but which king is it? Which throne do they seek? This is the visit of the Magi. Famous story of the wise men who come from the east following the star and find themselves in the presence of not infant Jesus, but at least uh, toddler Jesus in a house, not a manger. But these wise men figure strongly in our accounts of Christ's birth. We forget sometimes that as they're introduced, they're introduced, they're sort of uh, one of the two key players in this story, and the other one is King Herod. Both the Magi and King Herod are seeking. Both the Magi and King Herod are seeking the same thing. Both of them are seeking out this newborn king. The difference is why they seek him. Why they seek him. In the case of the Magi, as it is for all those who long for the Messiah and for his kingdom, they seek him out so that they can worship him. They seek him out so that they can prostrate themselves at his feet and offer up their gifts to him to glorify him. That is why they seek him. But King Herod, like all those who fear for their own kingdoms, seek him out for a different reason. Seek him out to stop him, to destroy him, so they might keep what they have and use it for themselves. Now, it falls to me this morning to ruin one of my favorite Christmas carols, We Three Kings. I've always loved that song. I love the words. I love the music of it. I I love how it evokes a sense of longing. But after this morning, you won't be able to sing it quite the same way. You'll still be able to sing it. I do. You'll just know that half of what you're singing is not factual. Before I ruin that, though, let's spend a little time with King Herod. Because I think to understand the wise men, we really have to understand King Herod and where he's coming from as well. King Herod demonstrates a lesson that all of us, would do well to heed. As long as you're determined to hold on to your crown, then you will never welcome the true king. Herod had a crown to hold on to. He was the king of the Jews. His father hadn't been. His father had been a ruler, but not a king. And Herod had started off as just a tetrarch, just ruling over an area, Galilee. But he played his cards right. He made good relationships. He was a favorite of the Romans who provided him with an army so that he could come back and establish himself as the king of the Jews. And he held that kingdom very tightly. He never felt secure in his throne because he didn't come from a long line. He didn't have an ancient genealogy. He wasn't even from Israel. He was from Edom, the land that we read about in our lectionary reading that the people of Israel skirted in that lectionary reading. That's where he came from, but he had come into Israel. His family had had 
gained power there, and he married into the ruling dynasty, which wasn't the line of David. It was what's called the Hasmoneans, the descendants of the Maccabees, who had driven out the Hellenistic rulers and for a season before the Romans came, had dominated. So he married into that family to establish his credibility. And then he systematically murdered his in-laws. Everyone who threatened his crown, he got rid of over time, including his wife, including some of his sons. That's how seriously he took his crown and how insecure he felt in the keeping of it. Herod did other things that people do in insecurity in order to show how great they are. One of the things he did was he built things. King Herod was a great builder, a beautifier of civic life. He built buildings not only in Israel, Judea, but he built them around the Mediterranean. He used his wealth in order to make his name great throughout the Roman world. But of course, there's one building project that we remember this king for, and it is the temple. The second temple, which we saw in the days of Zechariah, was restored under Zerubbabel. That second temple was vastly expanded by King Herod, so that it's often referred to as Herod's temple. He rebuilt on a grand scale. He took the the, the tabernacle part, the sanctuary, and he built it up massively. He extended the outer courts impressively. He did this work quickly at first. The, the, the temple portion at the center was built in just a couple of years. The outer courts, though, were so elaborate that they were still under construction during the days of Jesus. Have you ever wondered why it is when Jesus goes to the temple, he makes all of these references to the greatness of the temple and contrasts the, the physical temple with the spiritual temple? Well, it's because the temple in the lifetime of these people had been massively built up as the physical uh, focal point for the worship of God by King Herod. And according to Josephus, when they dedicated this work, Herod explained why he did it. He gave a speech explaining why he had rebuilt the temple. He had done it as thanks. He did this work. He built this temple to thank God for giving him this kingdom. So make no mistake, in Jesus' day, the meaning of that building that he built was that God had given Herod the kingdom. And in thanks, Herod had built a very nice house for God to dwell in. That was the relationship. Herod was the king God had given the kingdom to. They finally did finish the work, rebuilding the outer courts of the temple. They finished that in AD 64, and in AD 70, the Romans destroyed it all, bringing an end forever to this legacy of the physical temple. By that time, Jesus had already drawn the contrast. By that time, Jesus had already pointed in himself to the spiritual temple. So you can see how effervescent, how unlasting this kingdom was that Herod was clinging to so tenaciously. Matthew, I think, begins here in this narrative because he wants us to see from the beginning that the birth of Jesus introduces a clash of kingdoms. That there is automatically a a power struggle, a conflict that is taking place between the physical 
and the spiritual, the physical kingdom that Herod held on to so tightly. You might think of that as the realm of the stuff that serves you. All of the stuff that you cling to, that makes your happiness possible, that makes your dreams come true, that stuff we're so desperate to hold on to at any cost, the things you're afraid of losing, the things you can't imagine happiness without. That's the physical kingdom. And by contrast, the spiritual kingdom is the realm that serves God. The spiritual kingdom is the kingdom that you enter into through self-sacrifice. Not with the goal of satisfying yourself, but with the goal of worshiping Him. Just as Herod battled against the infant Jesus, the physical kingdom battles the spiritual and seeks to snuff it out. But the point here is that that's impossible. That the might of the physical realm has no power against the spiritual, even though the spiritual seems so weak in comparison. Herod thinks that he can deceive the Magi, that he can use their interest and their knowledge in order to locate this so-called king of the Jews and liquidate this so-called king of the Jews. He will subvert anyone in that goal. Not only does he go to the Magi and pretend to be interested in what they're doing and and want to help. Keep me in the loop when you find him so that I can come worship him as well. He also insinuates himself into the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the, the people, the scribes and priests that he calls together, asking them where the Messiah will be born. It's interesting that the king of the Jews doesn't know this stuff. He has to bring in experts to tell him where the prophets have predicted that this would happen. But you see, Matthew describing Herod's efforts to kind of zero in on this threat to his crown. The Sanhedrin, they they quote Micah 5.2. We get another fulfillment formula here as they do this, just as we did in the last section, where we're getting some highlighting, some flagging of these connections to Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment. And this prophecy from Micah tells them that Bethlehem is the place to look. So that gives Herod a location to search. Now, I think Matthew is also illustrating that the religious authorities of his time are already kind of in the pocket of the powerful. They're already collaborating with this false king to extinguish the true king. Later, clearly, Jesus will be in conflict with these same people, but it didn't start there. From the beginning, They're working hand-in-hand with Herod to help him. From the beginning, when he's worried about the future of his kingdom, they're worried too and looking to assist him. From the Magi, he inquires about the details of this star. What that gives him is not just a location, but also, let's say, a, a date range, an age. Like, when did you see this star exactly that signaled this birth so I can do the math and figure out how old of a kid is this going to be who I'm looking for? There's something really conniving and treacherous in Herod's actions here, even more than what we see in the plain reading of the text. When you reflect on it, you see that he's quite Machiavellian. And yet, as clever as he is and tenacious as he is, and despite the track record he has for dealing with threats to his throne, despite all of that, he is here thwarted by God by means of a dream. 
by means of a dream. Just as Joseph, in a dream, had his direction given to him, the Magi, fully deceived apparently, willing to cooperate with Herod, are warned in a dream, and they go home by a different direction. They have nothing to do with his treachery. No matter how ferocious they are, all of our efforts to cling to the physical kingdom, all of our efforts to cling to power are in vain. The lesson to Herod and the lesson to us, when you fight the Messiah, you destroy yourself. Herod does here. He is fighting against the true king and in the process destroying himself. Herod seeks Jesus, but he seeks him so that he can neutralize him. He seeks him so that Jesus won't have power over him. He seeks him so that he can deny to Jesus the things that are his, that are given to him for him. And that's why he resists. But the wise men seek him for another reason. The wise men are longing for the true kingdom. And if you're longing for the true kingdom, then your journey ends differently. Your journey ends in worship. They seek him in order to worship him. Now, here's why I have to ruin the carol a little bit. The the Magi do present a mystery to us. As you read this section, you may be surprised by the stuff Matthew doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us a lot of things that we take for granted and we assume to be biblical. In fact, Matthew leaves a lot of blanks, which tradition has come in and filled the way tradition does. Kind of tell us the stuff that the Bible doesn't. So here's what you need to know. Uh, They weren't kings. We sing we three kings just to remind yourself, oh, wait, no, they weren't. They were not kings. They also weren't three. Matthew doesn't say there were three wise men. Just that there were wise men. They brought three gifts, and from that, we probably derive the idea that there must have been three of them. Matthew doesn't make that clear. He doesn't give them names. He doesn't describe which nationalities they represent. All of the stuff that the people who made your nativity set needed to know in order to make those figures and make them accurately, Matthew does not provide those things to us at all. So what can we say about these magi? Well, we know they came from the east. It says that in the very first verse. What that means exactly is unclear. It probably means that they came from Babylon, but they may have just come from Persia because, of course, there's some overlap there. Now, the Magi themselves, we call them wise men, but uh, a more precise term might be something like magician, which is fun, kids, sort of like Hogwarts. You know, we've got some magicians here who show up in the gospel, but not magicians like doing magic tricks. Like these are magi who studied the world and, and probably astrology. So if you don't want to call them magicians, another term you might use is astrologer. But of course, when we think astrologer, we think of something really kind of crackpots. But back then, an astrologer was sort of like a scientist only a scientist operating with a view of the world that wasn't exactly accurate. So these were men of learning, men who were trying to understand the way the world worked, men who believed that by studying the stars, they might unlock the mysteries of history and the way the physical world worked. And not for the first time or the last time did God take a flawed theory, enter into it, and use it for his glory to communicate 
with these men. So there they are, probably in Babylon. And when you realize that, you start thinking of Daniel. Because Daniel went to Babylon and in Babylon was made chief of the Magi. Daniel was like head magician in Babylon. And so you start to wonder if maybe there's a connection, maybe there's a tradition, a legacy left behind through the work of Daniel that has been kept up all of these generations so that there are people here, learned men, studying the signs, anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And we saw in Zerubbabel's time, in Zechariah, that not all the exiles returned. Like there were people who had been sent into exile and never came back. So there would have been these exile communities in places like Babylon who could keep such learning alive. The star itself is a mystery as well. In the King James Version, it's described as a star in the east, but you'll see in the ESV it's translated as a rising star. In Greek, the word is very similar. So to say uh, in the east is Anatolon and rising is Anatole. This is the reason why, for example, Turkey is also called Anatolia, because it's to the east of Constantinople, where they came up with the name. The idea, so something to the east is Anatole, but something rising is described with the same word. So this is a rising or a sign in the heavens that they see. And it appears that it's some kind of a, a sign that, that we might think of in astrological terms, that indicates this birth and prompts their journey. But once they journey, when they go back, they see the star again. So the way you usually picture it is they're they're off in the east, and they see a star, and it's moving, and you're like, I wonder where that's going. Let's follow it and find out. And they spend who knows how long following the star. But if you read the text, it looks like they see some kind of a sign in the heavens that says the birth is nigh, time for you to go. They travel, and after they've encountered Herod, they encounter the star again. The reason for this interpretation is their reaction to it. They, they see it, and they're sort of overawed and filled with joy that they've seen it. Now it rests above the place where they're meant to go. It signals to them exactly where to go. They don't need to interpret prophecy now. They don't need to uh, do, let's say, learned supposition They can just follow this sign, and it takes them literally to the house where they're meant to go. And yet the exact nature of that sign remains mysterious to us. We don't exactly know what it would have looked like or how to describe it or account for it. Um, This is the reason why, for example, like attempts to explain it, like, well, it must have been like a shooting star or a comet or something like that, fall a little flat because the way that it's described is a little more mysterious and supernatural than that. But what isn't mysterious is the mission of the Magi. They make it very clear. The reason that they have taken this journey is this is a journey meant to end in worship. They have come to worship him, and when they find him, they do worship him. It's what they're there for. And once they've done that, they're good. They're ready to go. They have fulfilled their mission. Everything they do is about worship. It's striking that even Herod, in order to gain their trust, has to pretend that he too desires to be a worshiper of this king. Because that's how to speak their language. Because these are men who've sacrificed and journeyed and traveled with one end in mind. 
who worship him. Now, their worship, you might think of it as, as having like two parts. Like their worship involves like glorifying him, like praising him, but it also involves giving him their gifts. So both of those things are acts of worship. When they bow down before him and they honor him, they're worshiping him. And when they open up their chests and they give him the gifts, they're worshiping him. And this is why when we talk about worship, everything that we do here in the service is worship. Right? It's not just that the singing is worship. It's not just that the singing and the preaching is worship. Everything is worship. Even the giving is worship. We give our gifts, and it's an act of worship just as it was for them. The church father Origen believed that the three gifts that they gave, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, corresponded to Jesus' kingship and his humanity and his divinity. Regardless, they give him these precious gifts, but they sacrifice these things, these treasures, in order to magnify him. Things that they could have used for other purposes, they could have held on to the way Herod held on to things. Instead, they gave them up for him. They used them for his glory, not their own. When you sing about the Magi, when you think about these wise men, think about that. Think about why they did what they did and whether it was worth it. These guys in the East, men of authority and position, undertook a great journey in a day when that wasn't an easy thing to do. They left their homes behind, not knowing if they would see them again. They embarked based on an astrological sign in order to seek out a king that had been prophesied hundreds of years before in another nation. Based on very little certainty, they embarked with great determination. And when people do something like that, you expect that the reason that they do it must be marvelous. You probably haven't given a lot of thought to what would make you kill your spouse. You've probably not thought about why, under what circumstances, you might murder your children, like Herod did. But if you were going to do something like that, it stands to reason that you would do it like for, for very high stakes, as Herod did. He didn't do it just because he was bloodthirsty. He did it because he was bloodthirsty and he felt threatened. So for these guys to do this, something really important must be at stake. And when you find out that it's worship, does that strike you as maybe not enough? Like how far would you go for a church service? I know some of you have come from afar. You've come an hour away even. How far would you go just to worship? I think most of us, if we had to go, you know, like three countries over, might say, you know, I think you can worship God anywhere, even from bed. Let's not make the effort. This is, this is, it's a lot to do just to get to church and then 45 minutes later be wondering, is it almost over? And yet, this is why they came. This is why they undertook the journey, so that they might kneel at his feet and they might give their gifts him. That is the goal that drove them. That's why they sought him. And as you contemplate that, ask yourself this, why do we seek him? Why do we seek him? 
You should know by now that if the answer to that question is we seek him so that we might secure the stuff that will make us happy, that's not why they sought him. That's not the right reason. If we're just seeking him to secure some physical benefit, some physical kingdom, then we are not seeking him rightly. Is your life something to hold on to or is it something to give up? That's the question. Is the life you have something to cling to or is it something to sacrifice for a greater good? Because either you're trying to hold on to your crown or you're trying to throw it at his feet. Why do you seek him? Why do you seek him? If you had listened to what was being said, if you just listened to the words, you listened to what the Magi were saying, and then you listened to what Herod was saying, they sounded the same. If you were in the Sanhedrin, and you were saying to yourself, these Magi have come to find the Messiah, old King Herod has this sort of murdery habit that makes me uncomfortable, but he claims to be interested in the fulfillment of prophecy, so I'm just going to go with it and assume he's being sincere. You could have told yourself that based on what he said. But if you looked at what they did, you saw the difference. Now, Jesus had not spoken a word by this time in Matthew 2. But if you go to Matthew 7, Jesus is talking by then. And in Matthew 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Not by what they say, but by what they do. By their actions. And here's a good example. Herod sought Jesus in order to stop him. Wise men sought Jesus in order to worship him, and it's the actions that make the difference. Are we seeking him in order to worship him? Are we giving our gifts to him in order to glorify him? Because that's what life in his kingdom is about. Life in his kingdom, is about worshiping him and giving him our gifts to glorify him. The gospel doesn't urge us to talk about the kingdom. The gospel urges us to live in the kingdom. And you live in the kingdom through worship and through giving of your gifts for his glory. Oftentimes, the most remarkable things are hidden in plain sight. We're familiar with the stories, but we don't know what the moral of the story is. We take away the wrong thing. If what captivates you about this story is the star, you're missing the point that Matthew is making. If Matthew was focused on the mystery of the star, he would tell us more about the star than he does. If the thing that captivates you most is the mysterious origin of the Magi, the wise men, and what exactly was this astrology thing they were dabbling in, then again, you are missing Matthew's point. Because if that was the point, he would have told us more about that. So what is the point? The point is, there is a fundamental conflict between two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom that is coming. They aren't ruled by the same ruler, they aren't equally powerful either. The powers of this world, no matter what, cannot stop what is coming. The powers of this world will ultimately be vanquished. 
And the greatest contribution in that victory that wise men can make is to offer their worship and to give him gifts. If you see that conflict and you ask yourself, what is my role? What is the part that I play? How do I fight in this battle? You fight by following the example of the magi. The wise men knew what to do in this conflict. Between the two kingdoms, the way to wage war was worship. The way to fight was giving up their gifts, sacrificing them in order to glorify him. There was no other work for them to do. There was no other work to accomplish, no other feat that needed to be performed, just worship. And he calls you to the same thing. He calls you to serve in the same way, to worship him, and to take the gifts that he has already given you and use them to glorify him. That's what it means to live in the kingdom. That's the life that we've been called to. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.